Well, let's turn to God's Word together, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Uh, and uh, we began our journey through Romans 8 a long time ago now, but we never quite managed to finish it, so we, uh, God willing, will do so uh, this morning. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read from verse 31 together. It's page 1135, if you're using the Pew Bible. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight and help us by the strength that your Spirit supplies to be not just hearers of the Word, but doers also. To the glory of your great name we pray. Amen. So our passage, the end of Romans chapter 8, starts with a a question, a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer, of course, you know, is no one, or at least no one who would have any chance of winning. But it doesn't always feel that way. And the Bible is very clear about that. The people of God 
do have enemies. We do have people and things that stand against us, that seek to stand between us and Him. The world, that's the world that refuses to acknowledge God or to bow the knee before Him. The flesh, that's our old nature. And the devil, that's the, the, the spiritual forces of darkness that rage against the light. They all wage war against us. And sometimes, if we are honest, these enemies seem so big and so strong and we feel so small and so weak that we lose our confidence. So Paul writes to assure us and to remind us that if God is for us, then we need not fear. We have nothing to fear if He is for us and He is with us. And I'm conscious, of course, I was conscious as I was preparing this message that there may be some here this morning who need that reminder. Some of us who have forgotten that great and glorious truth or begun to doubt it. Some of us facing circumstances or situations that seem so unfair or troubles and trials that seem so overwhelming or problems that are just so relentless or we've been praying for so many weeks and months and years without seeing an answer to those prayers and those pleas that we have begun to find ourselves like Gideon. Remember what he said? When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Circumstances, circumstances had caused Gideon to think that the Lord wasn't with his people or for his people. And maybe you feel a wee bit like that this morning. All these great things happened in the past to other people at other times. Or maybe they're happening now to other people in other places. But what about me and the here and now everyday realities of my life? Where is God? Well, let's stay in the Old Testament for just a wee while longer and think for a moment about Genesis and Abraham. A long time ago, there was a man called Abraham. And God called this man to himself and gave him this amazing promise. 
that he would be the father of many nations. And Abraham and his wife had to wait a long, long time for God to fulfill this promise. They weren't as trusting and as patient as they ought to have been consistently anyway, and certainly Abraham. But eventually, in their very old age, the promised child was born. I want you to imagine for a moment the joy that Abraham and Sarah must have felt as they fixed their eyes on Isaac, as they cradled him in their elderly arms. They had longed for this baby to be born for such a long time. And now here he was. And not just the baby himself, but kind of wrapped up in Isaac is this great promise that from this child of promise will come this great family, huge in its size and its scale that will bless all the nations of the world. Can you imagine the joy and the laughter and the love that Isaac must have brought to Abraham and Sarah? That's in Genesis 21. And we might expect, you know, that to be the end of Genesis 21. And at the end, for uh, Abraham and Sarah with Isaac and their wee kind of mamas and papas, uh, baby walker, to, to walk off into the sunset and the music to start playing and the credits to come down. But nothing could be further from the truth because... We're led then into Genesis 22, which starts with a huge shock. So Genesis 22 opens with these words. It says, some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Can you imagine how Abraham feels now? How he tries to process this command which has come from God. Well, he goes with Isaac to the region, to the mountain, up the hill. He's an old man, so he gives Isaac the wood for the sacrifice to carry. And Isaac says to his father, you know, that the fire's here, the, the wood's here, but where is the lamb for the offering? And all Abraham can say is that the Lord will provide. He secures Isaac to the altar. He takes hold of the knife. Then verse 11, at that moment, the angel of the Lord shouted to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, 
Yes, he answered, I'm listening. Lay down the knife, the angel said. Do not hurt the boy in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld even your beloved son from me. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Abraham had shown his utter love and loyalty and commitment and dedication to his God by being willing to surrender, to sacrifice his son, his only son, the Bible says, his beloved son at the command of God. And surely here we have a sign that points us forward to Jesus. The same God who provided a sacrifice for Abraham and for Isaac on that mountain all those years ago has provided a suitable sacrifice for us, for the salvation of those who have sinned against God. And that sacrifice is His Son, His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just as no one could possibly deny the loyalty and the love of Abraham for his God, who could possibly deny the love and the loyalty of our God to us as we look to the cross? And not just God the Father, but the Son. So here is a difference between the story that we read in Genesis and the story that we read in the New Testament. Uh, Isaac, as he carries the wood, he's, he's looking around for the sacrifice. He doesn't realize that he is to be the sacrifice. He doesn't realize that the wood that he is carrying is for the burnt offering. That is for him. But the Lord Jesus Christ, as he carries the wooden beam on his back, knows exactly what is happening. He is willingly going to surrender himself in love for those who have sinned against his heavenly Father. 
He knows that at any given moment he could call down an army of angels to lift him away, to remove him from all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the injustice, and yet he presses on in love. Willingly, he laid down his life in love for us. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You might say, well, what does that mean? mean all things? Does that mean because God has given us Jesus, you know, we can be assured He'll give us a big fancy car, loads of money, and popularity, loads of followers on Facebook or Instagram or uh, whatever the latest one is, I'm out of touch now. Is that what that means? Well, that would be completely out of sync, wouldn't it, with the writings of the Apostle Paul, the New Testament Scripture, even this chapter, Romans 8. He didn't give up his son for us to live comfortable lives of ease, did he? He gave up his son that we might come to know him and to love him as he knows us and loves us. He gave up his son that we might journey with Jesus all the way safely home to the fullness of of his presence. And so Jesus says to those who would follow him, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Paul says he considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He will graciously give us all that we need to make our way safely home, that's what it means. We will lack nothing we require to journey with Jesus all the way to the fullness of His presence. He will graciously give us all we need to stand before Him on that day as one made righteous by Christ. Why? From Romans 8, if you still have it open. Because the Father chose us. That's verse 30. Because the Son died and was raised and is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. That's verse 34. And because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
That's verse 26. So we have nothing to fear. Even in the courtroom scene of verses 33 and 34, we stand before God and all is laid bare before Him. Every thought, every word, every deed is all there, all out in the open. We still have nothing to fear. God is not going to condemn those who are in Christ Jesus. He loves us. He gave His only Son for us. Jesus Himself is at the right hand of God with the name that is above every name interceding for us. I know I've quoted this about a million times from this pulpit, but a million and one, what's the, what's the difference? Maybe you can tell me who this is. Do you think you could manage that? We're going to go for it. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Do you know who said that? Well done, Robert Murray McShane. We have nothing to fear. The narrow road that leads to life is not always easy. It is paved with challenges and trials and troubles. That's why Paul quotes uh, from Psalm 44, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I know a couple of weeks ago we had open doors speaking and we thought of our brothers and sisters in other places facing very real persecutions. We have our own troubles but this mistreatment, even this mistreatment, cannot rob us of the love of God. Neither can death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future. This isn't like wedding vows that I read about recently that said, you know, I, I love you today and we'll see how things go tomorrow. The love of God is eternal. And we who live in Christ will live in that love forever. Neither the present nor the future, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we've moved in this great chapter from no condemnation all the way through to no separation. No condemnation and no separation from God and His incomparable love. And all of this is a gift of grace. It is for all who are to use the language of verse 1 in Christ Jesus. And so I close by asking very simply, where are you? Not, not where are you in terms of, you know, what, what pew are you on? I can see that. But where are you in relation to God? Are you in Christ? Are you in His love? Are you more than a conqueror through him who loved you?
Or are you in your sins? Are you in danger of death and of hell? If you're not sure where you are, then know that you can be. You can be sure. He has given and He will give all that is required to see you live in His love if you would come to Him in simple repentance and faith, wholeheartedly, unreservedly, come to Him and live. And if you do, you'll be able to sing this great song that we're about to stand and sing in Christ alone. I want to just close by reading the the final verse of the song that we're about to sing. It says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand.